Hi, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm Angie Trudell Vasquez. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with writer Tegan Nia Swanson about her debut novel, Things We Found When the Water Went Down, published by Catapult out of New York. Welcome, Tegan. Hi, Angie. Nice to be here with you. Well, I'm so happy that you're giving us this honor, and I would like to read your brief bio before we get started from the back of the jacket here. So I'm going to introduce people to you. Tegan Nia Swanson is an advocate, educator, artist, gardener, and Unitarian Universalist Buddhist, most at home while in or near large bodies of water or walking under the canopies of many trees. Things We Found When the Water Went Down is her first novel. Tegan, please ground us in ceremony by reading the opening, opening epitaph of your book and share with our listeners about why you selected this particular piece. Uh, thank you so much, Angie. I'm happy to do that. Uh, the epitaph comes from a poem by Muriel Rekaiser uh, called... Kathy Kollwitz, I think is how you pronounce the German, uh, which was first featured in one of her collections called The Speed of Darkness. And the line from that poem is, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. Hmm. And I picked that line, um, one, because I love Mariela Kaiser's poetry and there there are so many lines from that book that I think could speak to this one. It was maybe a little hard to choose, but I think also this is a story, this is a book about voices mm-hmm. and about um, folks who have not been able to tell their stories or their truths and how when they are given or when they take that opportunity, um, because it's also a story about power, um, that their their stories can change the world. And that radical um, that radical juxtaposition between the story and the voice and who hears it and and who is allowed or uh, fights to tell their story. Mm-hmm. So that's where. It, it's really powerful, and I too like Muriel Rukeyser. Um, before we start having you read excerpts, I really wanted to talk to you about how this book came to be. What was its journey? Uh, sure, yeah, I can tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I wrote a, a short story that became this novel in my best friend's kitchen here in Madison, actually, while I was on spring break from my my MFA program uh, visiting her. And I I was working on this story that was uh, a bit of artifact. It was a bit of communal point of view. Uh, And then Ultimately, when I was working on my thesis, I, I returned to the story because of the encouragement of one of my professors who really loved uh, experimental fiction and um, 
story collections that were communal points of view or linked. And he encouraged me to consider how I could expand that story. So um, that's sort of where the, the story became book length. I think the root of the story, the root of the book as a whole, I could I could tell so many stories about. Um, the book is dedicated to my paternal grandmother. Uh, my my paternal grandparents introduced me to the North Shore, the North Country, the North Woods. So many different ways to to name Lake Superior and the surrounding areas, and uh, they really instilled in me um, a belief in storytelling and myth, but also an appreciation for communities and cultures that have not been centered, including the Anishinaabe folks and communities that are still here and whose land is um, is is where we now call Lake Superior. Um, I think there are elements of lots of different books and writers and poets and myths that you might have noticed in the footnotes or in, in other spaces as well. But uh, I have a hard time answering this question, as you may notice, because <laughs> I'm a very gentle thinker. <laughs> and I think the book reflects that too. So mm -hmm. there, are a lot, there are a lot of origin stories for this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I found it to be really evocative. Um, but there was, there was just, there's so much in here. Um, and another thing I wanted to ask you about before we get into the book deep is to ask you about the cover. Why this image? Mm -hmm. I, I found it, well, deep and mysterious. And um, if you want to describe it for folks who are listening and tuning in, um, what how the cover came to be, what the cover looks like, and, and why you selected it for this for this book. Sure. Yeah. Um, I have to thank Dana Lee at Catapult for this incredible image. I'm so grateful to her and to everyone else at the Catapult team for really taking such care and intention to offer this image that is, uh, when, when they sent me the, the draft of the cover, I will be very frank that I cried um, out of hat. And, and just, um, you know, it, it it evoked so many things for me. Like you said, it, it's an evocative book, I think, in a lot of ways. And the cover is uh, an image of a body of water with no, no shore in sight. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that it is um, a depiction of what in the book is called the Inland Sea. Um, and that is sort of overlaid. Uh, it, it's a, the, an, an image of the Inland Sea at night, I should say. And there are stars in the sky. It's a very clear night with a bright full moon at the very center. But then there are also bits and spurts of water from the waves because the water is kind of choppy and those bits and spurts might also be falling stars. They might also be snowflakes. Uh, the, the book is set 
during midwinter, right at mm-hmm. the height of the winter solstice, and there are uh, meteor showers that are happening, and there's a blizzard that comes on and, and takes a big role in the conflict and the the plot. So mm-hmm. I think there's there's just a lot there, uh, and the the moon itself is is also a very important central motif and the the space under the water is an important layer as well so mm-hmm. uh, I, I just feel very lucky to have been able to work with other artists in the publishing industry who captured so much of the story and such a striking image what I was noticing as you were talking it does indeed look like the stars are falling down into the water and um, it's a full moon as we're recording this on November 8th and this will air on the 21st but we are doing this on a very special day full moon and the full moon mm-hmm. on your book and it feels like magic for sure mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. this um this image you know and, and what's beneath it and the fact that things we found when the water went down and I want to just look at the back a minute and say for our listeners one of the descriptions on here says a Nordic eco-noir shot through with magical realism. Things we found when the water went down examines power, identity, and myth in a story that asks us to asks us to explore what it means to heal or not after violence. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever seen Nordic eco-noir shot through with magical realism. I feel like you're doing something brand new, Tegan. <laughs> I don't Thank know. you. It, it, it feels so original. It, it really does. Um, and, you know, I, I want us to also ground this in the characters. And if you could start reading from page five, the dramatist personae, I think is how you pronounce it. I am interested in the naming. And I think our listening mm-hmm. audience would benefit from you reading uh, this from this very early section to ground our discussion for the rest of the time that we're together. Sure. Naming is, I think, something that's that's very also present. The idea of it and the importance of it in the in the book. Uh, the the first in the list is Emmeline Beatrice Abernathy Bailey, and that's the that is the name in title. Uh, but then there's a, a semicolon, and it says me, Lena, meaning this is the narrator of the story. She, her, hers, pronouns, daughter of Marietta, Patrick, archivist, the one who came of the solstice. Marietta Abernathy, my mother. She, her, hers, daughter of Ursa, the hunter, curator of the paper moon menagerie, the one who drowned and came back. Patrick Bailey, dad, he, him, his. Son of unknown woman, J.A. Bailey, hydraulic specialist, Ironson and Associates, singer of hymns, player of resonators, the one who carries us to shore like a wave. Beatrice Orleans, or Aunt B. She, they, her, hers, them, theirs. Child of Marie and Joseph, lover of Ursa, adoptive parent of Marietta, social worker, Sunday house for girls of Calais County, 
current owner-operator, the bear and bird, the one who laughs and laughs, Ursa Abernathy, matriarch, she, her, hers, daughter of Dot, Henry, the mountain who bled out in the snow, Alice Olsen, the ghost of Beau Calais, he, him, his, son of Alan and Oli, mining apprentice, Masabi Mine Company, Ruin Lake Branch, the witness. Hugo Mitchum, the weasel of the North Country, he, him, his, son of Rita May and Arthur, mining apprentice, Masabi Mine Company, Ruin Lake Branch, the one who digs the hole. Francis Delacroix II, or Frank, to those who know. He, him, his, son of Roberta Francis, officer, Calais County Aquatic Patrol, retired site chief, Masabi Mine Company, Ruin Lake Branch, the law, uneasy. Ingrid Solberg Black, deputy ranger and de facto advocate, she, her, hers, Daughter of Liesel and Walter, posted at the Ruin Lake Station, Calais County Wilderness Service, Wilderness Service, circa 1998 to present. The soft hand that carries an axe. The dog, the silver wolf sister, the shepherd who watches, and the spotted one who curls up at my feet whenever we are still. And finally, the women beneath. Hmm. And the women beneath. This is um, opening your book, and there are excellent poems and prose found here and and artifacts, and there's so much here. But let's start with your point of view. This was told through various point of views from your main character and others. All of them I found fascinating. And the footnotes, Deacon, they are like a character mm-hmm. in the book as well, along with like the water and the land and the snow and the stars. But um, why this particular structure for your novel, which is unusual in many ways and fantastic. But I was curious about why you structured it with this multiple point of views. Sure. Uh, like I said in the very beginning when you were asking me about the, the roots or the origin of, of the story, I am a tangential thinker. I'm, I'm a person who has both a, a challenge and an insistence to look at things and hear about things from many angles. Mm-hmm. And I think... This is also a story about the impact of uh, an instance and uh, an individual experience on the community and the mm-hmm. community's impact on the in- individual. Mm-hmm. And knew that I couldn't tell this story from just one point of view. In fact, I I tried for a while. There were a lot of drafts of the original story and in putting this together as a book-length piece that, you know, I I tried to find ways to tell different pieces of the story from the same point of view. But ultimately, I knew in order to really examine 
the complexity of a story that's about uh, structural and societal violence that is about healing that takes place in community, I needed to be able to speak to it from different angles and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And that included telling the story in interview form, and that included visual collage. And I think ultimately, as well, in thinking about it, uh, I, I was really clearing the narrative, I guess, if I can use that word. Mm-hmm. Um, the This idea that the, uh, to, to play with mm-hmm. more language, um, the, a straightforward structure wasn't going to do it mm-hmm. here. I needed to be communal and fluid and to resist the linear, to resist the expected structure that is enforced in some ways. Mm-hmm. And in order to center and elevate stories that don't get told. I think I also wanted to talk about that in a meta level Mm -hmm. um, and talking about how communities respond to instances of, of violence or of just, you know, everyday Mm -hmm. mundane things even. Um, So you segued really nicely. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I found myself playing, I guess, with structure. Well, you know, this is a work of art. Like, you mentioned that, you know, there's, it's in an interview form, but there's poems in here, and there's prose in here, and it feels like there's found artifacts, and there's definitely collages and letters and journal entries and, and even newspaper front covers. Um, so it's it's mm-hmm. fascinating. You can spend a lot of time, you know, I found myself picking the book up and turning it around and, you know, really examining it from different um, angles. And I was curious, um, did you create all the art within the novel, the collages and the newspaper front covers? Was that you? Yes, it was. And I, I do want to be very gracious and mindful of collage art as something that is communal, right? Like Mm -hmm. these are all built as pieces that have come into the world through other people's eyes and minds. But yeah, I, I've been making collage sound, sound, um, mixed media collage since I was probably in high school. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was also an original element of the, the short story that I wrote uh, in in graduate school and being able to expand on that and and finding a home for a book like this Mm -hmm. and to have it published with those pieces was such a profound gift, I think, that I was not expecting. I, again, you know, in thinking about clearing clearing the the way of, of storytelling and pushing and expanding on expectation, I didn't think when I was originally working uh, on the story that it would ever be published, let alone turned into a book and catapult. And the folks that I've worked with there have been so supportive of that and seen the, the benefit of it. The footnotes, mm-hmm. um, you know, I want to I wanna pay so much uh, honor to other writers that I've seen play in, in the structure and, and design of their work in that way as well. Um, you know, we work together in 
um, anti-violence work and mm-hmm. Carmen Maria Machado's memoir in the dream house plays with style and structure mm-hmm. in ways that really influenced how I was putting this together too. So, Tegan, have you ever seen a book structured like yours? I mean, this to me is brand new. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this. Is this something that you feel is you you gave birth to this new maybe this new way <laughs> of like writing and compiling and putting I mean it truly is gonna need more readings and examination by me but I've never quite seen anything like this are you doing something brand new I so appreciate you saying that Angie and it, it means so much to me coming from you um, I I hope so. I Mm. hope that it also asks people to think about how they tell their own stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like if they they are uh, wanting to share pieces of themselves, how they can do that. And Mm -hmm. I myself, um, uh, you know, like you you read my biography Mm -hmm. or my autobiography or whatever you want to call it. in the beginning, and I'm a, I'm an advocate. I, I work in anti-violence work during the day, but I'm also a gardener. I'm also somebody who loves to play with visual imagery. I'm a friend and community member, and uh, you know, I have all of these pieces of myself. So mm-hmm. I think I was, as a as an artist, as a writer, I was just really resisting this. Um, expectation that I tell it I tell something straight mm-hmm. that's that's not how I work <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah well I think um we are ready to listen to you read from some of these um sections and um I'm going to have you start at page 15 the section entitled soaked and muddy and barely toilet trained and while you, I love that one. <laughs> while you're turning there, I'll just remind folks that this is Madison Bookbeat. I'm Angie Trudel Vasquez interviewing Tegan Nia Swanson on her debut novel, Things We Found When the Water Went Down. I'll also sort of uh, introduce the section in that okay. in each of these sections, there is sort of a subtitle of them, and it includes. Um, a, a geographic location and an explanation of whose voice this is coming from. So this soaked and muddy and barely toilet trained uh, is home, 48 degrees, 12:57 North and 90 degrees, 55:23 West. And this is from excerpts of an interview with Patrick Bailey, who is the narrator's dad. You were about three, first time you got real curious. One night she dreamt of something like drowning, and before she woke up, before I could wake her up, she'd burst the pipe to the kitchen sink. Next morning we came down the starloft stairs to a swamp that had filled up the cabin and spilled its way out into the yard. The specimens she'd collected recently were not entirely lost, her flooding, but many of them had escaped whatever containers she'd been keeping them in. The crawling algae she'd been keeping had unfurled itself across the floors and up the walls. A school of dwarf Georgian were trapped in a stock pot. 
Her last frost pine sapling had tipped over sideways on its root ball, and a pair of soggy ghost-nosed bats had taken up residence in its boughs. Glass jars floated about the house like they were like we were in a boat stalled in the doldrums, like we'd stumbled across every message ever lost to the sea in a bottle. By half past seven in the morning, she was crying. You were soaked and muddy and only barely toilet trained. The cabin started to smell of wet dog. Mar was hungover from the dream. She spent most of that day waiting around and wailing quietly while she tried to collect the things she'd flooded. The following three days curled up in the empty bathtub basin with a sleep mask over her eyes. I couldn't both clean the house and keep you from wandering off on the inland sea, so I convinced you it would be fun to bail sandcastle buckets of water out the front door. That occupied you for about 20 minutes, and then you got sick of stomping around in your galoshes. I had my head directly under the sink basin when you came and poked me in the gut. Papa, you said very sternly, Mama's zombie zoo is giving me the creeps. Smacked my head against the pipe, laughing. You were right, though. Gave me the creeps, too. Not funny, you said again, very sternly. So I stopped laughing and put on my own stern face. I've known since you were very small to take you seriously when you are in a mood like this. You are your mother's daughter this way. I'm sorry, little girl. I said, what's the trouble? What happened to the hole? What hole, Lena? The one at the bottom of the lake, you said. I saw it in Mama's dream, but now she can't find it. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Tegan. That last line, you know, it makes me think of so many things. Um, and the way you read it and you put the directionals, I want to ask you, why the navigational directionals for every piece, or most of them? Um, I think one of the things that I was also trying to mirror or replicate here is the relationship, the the story, the book is is in bigger ways about our relationship between land and community. Um, I I was trying to ground folks in space in a way that doesn't always happen. I think in an artifact that is can and can be very removed and very uh, sort of out of space and time in some ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the layers of the collage elements that I wanted to capture in these pieces was that these really are bursts or moments of people's lives, the, the storytellers' lives, the narrator and her family and the other people who are featured in the story mm -hmm. um and, and so to to ground folks in that whether they go and look it up or not i've i've been reaching out to folks 
at various places, bookstores and whatever, to, to connect with them. And one of them, uh, I was really excited that they literally went and looked, and they they were happy and uh, excited to, to see where one of them was based. Um, I think, to one of the risks that I was taking in telling the story in this way, and one of the great gifts that I've had from readers, from my lovely friends who were in my MFA program and, and other folks who've given me feedback, including my wonderful editors at Catapult, um, about how to make sure that this experimental structure didn't uh, discombobulate readers, mm -hmm. I guess, is mm -hmm. to give them a little bit of center, a little bit of ground. And I think we we uh, in, we we engage with that whether we're acknowledging it or not. I remember reading stories kind of similarly in the same way mm -hmm. when I was young. So I, I think that was but. I don't think it pulls you out of the story, and I think it keeps you grounded in the story. But, you know, if you're curious, you're like, where is that? I want to go map it out. So that was <laughs> my experience. But it did not take me out. It kept me in. Um, but Place really is very another character in the story. Um, mm -hmm. Let's go to page 42, and I'm going to have you read um, the section entitled Evidence. And okay. as you're finding that, um, I'll say the, the first part reads as a poem, and the second is like more of an interview. Um, and then on page 43, there's three different sections from three different voices, but I'm going to ask you not to read the one word in that second um, prose block on page 43 that will get the station in trouble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, will, I will skip over that. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, I was like, well, I'd like to hear that, but um, if we were live, there's a red button that we can hit to mute that. But um, mm -hmm. So I'm just going to ask you to self-censor that one word so we don't get in trouble. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I will happily do that. Thank you. Um I think, you know, to your question about structure, mm -hmm. another reason that this particular section is here, it, it speaks to one of the influences, which I can talk more about, but mm -hmm. it's also, this is just like a collection of, of and evidence sections are, they play a role of, of sort of a collection of voices that give different perspectives mm -hmm. on what's happening in the story. So mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Uh, evidence. We paint the world below with our bruises, opal, blue, and mint, green, yellow, like dandelion pollen. We make snow of cut paper, skin, blood on our fingertips, wrists. We stitch our hearts together with glue, all that pink milk build when our limbs peeled open like citrus split no hesitation so sticky sweet and sour the women beneath three months before you were born late december 
an explosion at the Masabi copper mine on ruined sparkled, sparked dry piled wood at the Ironson timber mill and spilled slurry into the lake. Fire caught all that tinder, pine, and birch of the boundary forest. Miles of cultivated and wild growth alike. In retrospect, seems like that was a moment of war. Certainly brought the insomnia of ashes. Footnote. The autumn and winter seasons following the Ruin Lake Fire of 1999. See also Snow Birch Bird, A Natural History of the North Country, page 100. Return. Almost 17 years later, folks still talk in metaphors, hushed voices. They're every one of them afraid to speak too loud and bring it back to life. You've seen those photos from the Daily. According to Frank, the Mitchum kid was the one on the schedule, but it was Ellis Olsen on watch at Ruin that night. When the rescue crew found him three days after the flames went down, he was terribly burned and half-blinded. His right eye turned white. Deputy Ranger Ingrid Sober Black, Calais County Wilderness Service. My boy, my boy was good. You don't know. You don't know. Just leave. Leave. You're not welcome here. Leave us be. Mrs. Ellen Ironson, mother of Alice. Boys will be boys, right? But that Mitchum kid was hard to handle. Everybody in town knew Alice Olsen was soft. Big, gentle man, big, gentle hand. What does it matter? Doesn't matter. I think he was sweet on one of the fishermen once, but I never knew him to act. Nobody would have cared, except Hugo Mitchum. Boys on the Masabi cruise, they pushed and prodded while they were working, got belligerent, pushed more. At the Wendigo, a couple days before, I heard him arguing. Ellis said something about leaving well enough alone. You don't come along, Hugo says. I'm going to tell everybody you beep, moose, and rep. Had a way of speaking so you heard. I wasn't the only one close enough that I had to turn away to pretend, and nobody spoke up, myself included. Frank Delacroix, Calais County Aquatic Patrol, retired site chief, Masabi Mine Company, Ruin Lake Branch. The dialectic of trauma gives rise to complicated, sometimes uncanny alterations of consciousness, which George Orwell, one of the committed truth-tellers of our century, called, quote, double-think, and which mental health professionals searching for calm, precise language call, quote, dissociation. It results in protean, dramatic, and often bizarre symptoms mm. to determine trauma, and recovery. Thank you, Tegan. Um, many of them are characters, but Judith Herman, trauma and recovery is different. Do you want to talk a little bit more about why you included that particular um, partial paragraph with George Orwell in here? Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, um, most of the evidence sections, most of the artifacts, 
and even down to the detail of the species names for a lot of most of the the trees and plants and birds and creatures that are named in this book are fiction. Mm -hmm. They're they're dreams, they're imagined. Mm -hmm. But uh, this in particular, this quote from Judith Herman, who uh, is a a writer and a researcher who wrote this book called Trauma and Recovery that came out in the 80s and has been amended since then, identified similarities between uh, what was what is now called post-traumatic stress disorder in folks who have experienced conflict because of war, like Vietnam veterans, mm-hmm. and people who have experienced very personal, intimate trauma, like domestic or sexual violence victims and survivors, and uh, to the point that they're, sometimes their brain scans are very similar, the mm-hmm. ways that they respond to triggers or uh, other uh, you know, social-emotional r- reactions in everyday life are very similar, and Judith Herman wrote this text. Uh, she was the first one to sort of identify that trauma at an individual interpersonal level can be as harming and as, as violent and impactful as uh, a moment of war hmm. to a human. And it has physical implications for the brain. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. We're going to thank you for that. Um, let's Let's segue to one of the letters. On page 142, Paper Looms, and while you get there, I was noticing the different um, font and typing, and there's a lot of variation in this book, and this reminds mm-hmm. me of an old typewriter. It's funny that you say that, Andy, because when I wrote the story originally, I wrote these letters mm-hmm. on paper on a typewriter that was given to me by my uncle Mm. uh, who when he was first a student and uh, a storyteller and Mm. I keep that typewriter sort of as a as a memory of of that gift and here in the the book um, I think that echo of tactile mm-hmm. letters and tactile storytelling between people, I think, is, is also a layer. It's a wonderful layer, um, and it's beautiful. Like, typewriters are u- very unique, and I know writers who only write on typewriters, even now, or they mm-hmm. search for them. But um, if you could read Paper Loons for us, I think that, is, you know, we want to entice people to buy your book, Deacon, but we don't want to give it all away. <laughs> So I was careful sure. with my selections. <laughs> um, this the paper loons is, is a um, common uh, title for sections because they are the the letters that are written from the mother character to the daughter. So this one is uh, on the fifteenth of December. Lena, baby, they will call you all kinds of dirty things wield words and weapons against you, point, threaten, holler. I hope 
they do nothing worse, but it has happened to others, and I think you are old enough now to know the truth of it. They will do everything they can to stop you, to make you small, to contain you. We have been dragged from our beds in the nighttime by angry folks with torches waiting. We have been thrown in holes, tied with ropes, locked in boxes and cells. But you will learn their boundaries are not your own. Find a way through when there is none. Make windows of walls. Oh, I love that, Tegan. Make windows of walls. Find a way through when there is none. Make windows of walls. Really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated your poetry in here. Um, I really did. You know, that's that's my first um, writing thing. Let's go to 177. Um, that, to me, was another section that I thought would be a good one to share with the audience. And while you find it, I will say what the title is. I still hear that sound sometimes. Mm-hmm. The uh, locative t- subtitle here is Culley County Wilderness Service, Ruin Lake Branch. 48 degrees for 15 north and 90 degrees 3919 west. This is from excerpts of an interview with Deputy Ranger Ingrid Silver Black. Nobody slept from December to June of the following year because the whole forest creaked at night. Well, the place where the forest used to be. I was in the Army before my post at the Wilderness Service, and some of my squad lost limbs. They talk about nerve damage, phantom pain. I think these burnt-out dumps, the root left behind underground, they had the same kind of trouble. Their branches and their leaves and all the little flowered buds that come in springtime, they weren't really there any longer, but they still hurt I go out on duty now, walk the border of the lake and where the woods used to be. I still hear that sound sometimes. After the insomnia, we made a myth of her, turned her into a creature, part ghost, part bird, a thing drowned and come back breathing. It wasn't her who brought a blackness down on us. We all stood by. We all watched. We knew the truth and didn't do enough. She was a little girl. She was a little girl. Now, nobody knows for sure but them, so I can only tell you what I've heard. But I'll repeat that much, at least, lest it be forgot and that boy truly gets away with things. I came to take her statement at the hospital, part of the ranger job, held her hands, while they stitched her up a wretched mess, but she didn't flinch once. I'll tell you what I remember her mentioning, but it's been near 17 years. Hmm. Uh, I got to take a breath after that. Um, I want to say in this book, I read it in two sittings. Um, It went really quickly Mm -hmm. and I only stopped reading because I really needed to go to bed 
but um, I want to go back and and review things because in talking with you, um, I'm learning things and I can experience it on a different level. And I think Mm -hmm. it reminds me of art where you can get more, the more you go back to it, the more you get from it, right? There's multi-layers, there's Mm multi-voices, and when you approach art at different times in your life, you get different things. And I love how this book goes back and forth in time and space and 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 truly like parallel universes and that's all I'll say about that because people really need to buy your book um, and it, it felt like a surreal movie to me at times but but Tegan um, your book where can people find it um, when is it coming out for the general public um, where can you know any, anything you can say to, to share with the people who are listening to Madison Bookbeat they're probably entranced. Where can they get your book? Sure. Uh, it is coming out December 6th, 2022, which is in now less than a month. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, December 20, or Tuesday, December 6th. Uh, I will plug uh, that it was recently featured on the American Booksellers Association December indie next list which means that when you want to know where you should go buy your books any local bookstore your favorite local bookstore please go support them and the magical work that they're doing you can find my book there you can ask them to order it Uh, i will be having a book launch i'm so excited to say at Stateline Distillery on Tuesday, December 6th at 7 p.m. I'm super excited to be sharing some space with them and folks that come. If you if you think you'd like to come and hear words, I'd also encourage you to bring something for a communal altar of meaning to you. Um, so feel free to reach out to me about that if you have questions. Uh, and then I'll I'll be having readings around the Midwest, especially and uh, potentially elsewhere, throughout the winter and the spring of, of 2023. And I know that I'm planning uh, an event with a room of one's own in the spring of 2023. The dates are yet to be decided, but I am planning to involve local anti-violence organizations, folks that are doing direct service for survivors of domestic and sexual violence and to uh, promote primary prevention efforts. Um, We're going to have a panel discussion and talk about how storytelling and community are so uh, intricately connected and important. Um, So watch out for news of that. Um, And I can name my website, too, uh, if you want me to. Oh, please do. Um, my name is Tegan Nia Swanson, and my website is teganiaswanson.org. My name is spelled like vegan, T-E-G-A-N. My middle name is N-I-A, and my last name is S-W-A-N-S-O-N. I know there are a lot of iterations of all of those names, so teganiaswanson.org. Wonderful. And I will be there on December 6th at Stateline Distillery. Okay. Tegan, it has been really wonderful to speak with you. We are getting close to the end here, um, and we're not going to get to all the questions that I had for you, 
But um, in the short time we have left, um, I like to always ask writers about their revision process. So what is your mm. revision process? Mm. That's such a rich question. Uh, I think in this story, particularly the revision process, a lot of it had to do with the organization of the text itself, what sections really needed to be next to each other in order to sort of foster conversation between different voices or different pieces of the text, as well as cultivating suspense or tension or um, understanding so that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that the, the footnotes and those pieces uh, sort of feel like a choose-your-own-adventure in some way, I think, <laughs> and playing around with the order of the text in this particular book was a lot of the revision process, as well as really, I think, honing in on the voices of individual characters that you know, ultimately are both rooted in my own imagination as well as humans and experiences and stories and voices that I've heard in, in real life and real time. And so trying to find their genuine pitch and tone and how they would say things or how they would witness the world or how they, what they would relate mm -hmm. in, a, in an instance of the sort of core of the story where we are uh, compelled to tell the truth and we are also compelled to hide or, or uh, revive mm -hmm. literally those mm -hmm. paths to, to make ourselves or community look a different way. So, yeah. oh, Thank you. Well, we will talk more about revision because that's where I, I love that focus. But Tegan, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be on Madison Book Beat. I think your book is breathtaking um, in so many ways, um, and I, I wish you the great success. And then I'm thank just, you and, so much. Oh, Tegan, this is this is really beautiful, um, and I really wish you great success with this book. And I know you'll be at AWP, and I know you'll be around. So people, please pay attention to um, what Tegan will be doing because I think you're going to want to attend at least one and definitely buy the book but i'm going to close this out with saying you have been listening to madison bookbeat stay tuned this afternoon for all around jazz with alex wilding white the insurgent radio kiosk is up next i've been your host angie trudel vasquez keep it tuned here to community radio wort 89.9 fm madison Thank you.